G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and good to be back with you on a podcast about where philosophy meets psychology. Absolutely, and oh, it is just such a, a fascinating topic in so many ways, I think, and I suppose one that, as I learn a little bit more about it, it just becomes so much more apparent how connected the two are in terms of ancient Greek philosophy and modern psychology. Yes, and one of the things that was great that came across in the last podcast is your passion for the subject. Actually, it was wonderful to get some feedback from especially a couple of regular listeners, but also others uh, saying how they picked up on your interest and, well, deep understanding of some of these topics. And so, yeah, well, we're giving it another run today because these themes are so rich and the wisdom from the ancient Greeks is so rich that it's worth unpacking it a bit further. Well, certainly, and yeah, it was oh, so nice to, to receive those messages from people, so I very much do appreciate those, but I must admit, Dad, like, I obviously, I love this sort of stuff, but I think it's, oh, it's, it's maybe less about kind of how I feel about it, and more in some ways about, I think, the relevance of these topics, like, I suppose, at their almost most fundamental level, these couple of episodes are about, about meaning, and about how we can make meaning for ourselves and find meaning in our lives. And I think that's just such a, a relevant issue at the moment for so many people in terms of how can we make meaning for ourselves in a, in a modern society that is so different to how it was even, you know, 10, 20 years ago. There can be an element of, well, in some ways confusion, maybe in some ways anxiety. And I just see the, the ancient Greek philosophers as having so many, well, I suppose, answers to some of the questions that, well, certainly I myself have, but I, I think many people out there as well have. Yes, yeah, interesting how you're highlighting that meaning. And one of the things that strikes me is over recent years in the positive psychology field, I think one of the trends is looking even further and more explicitly at the topic of meaning. And certainly Michael Steger is one of the main people who's done a lot of work in that area. But I also think it comes up more broadly in psychology. I think one of the directions that's emerging is more interest in spirituality, but not necessarily religion. When we think of like a spiritual dimension in life that's not so much religious, we're partly looking at things that add meaning to our lives. So, yeah, I think very relevant to current life as well. And I did want to just mention as well, following on from that, that uh, probably should have mentioned it a little bit more last week, but much of this material comes from a lecture series done by the Canadian, he's uh, a cognitive psychologist and uh, I think he's a, a Buddhist as well. He's got a, a wide range of, of areas of interest, but John Viveki is his name and he has a, I think it's about a 50-part lecture series of, of 50 one-hour-long lectures, but it's called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So clearly he picked up on maybe there being a, a yearning for some of this information to be a little bit more out there and and I just think his summation of, of both maybe our search for meaning at the moment and our want for a little bit more meaning in our lives and his emphasis on a whole range of things but there was a couple of episodes on the Greek philosophers and, and that certainly resonated with me in terms of oh, I just think there's, there's such a fountain of wisdom the Greek philosophers and we don't maybe have a lot of say explicit wisdom tradition in our society anymore I think maybe 
there are potentially other societies and cultures around the world that a little bit more explicitly focus on the cultivation of wisdom. So I suppose for, for us Westerners, we almost need to, uh, to search for it a little bit more, but I think it is absolutely there if we look back to some of the major influences, including the Greek philosophers. Yes, and we've described in recent episodes how the field of psychology has looked to mine some of that wisdom from the Greek philosophers, including the Stoics. And that Stoic philosophy, that it's not so much things that happen to us or events that lead to the way we feel or react, but how we perceive them, that's a core understanding from Stoic philosophy that has really informed the cognitive behavioural field. But in talking about some of these other philosophers, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and others that we'll talk about today, there's a whole tradition of Greek philosophy that was leading up to that Stoic wisdom. Well, certainly, and... Of course, we're, we've called today's episode uh, similar to last week. So, Socrates to Stoicism, Modern Meaning from Ancient Greece, Part 2 today. So, the, the second part of our two-part little series here. And we thought to start off, we'll do a bit of a recap from last week's episode because it was a couple of weeks ago now since the episode came out. So, of course, as you mentioned there, last week we started with Socrates, who in some ways is... Oh, it, the founding father of a lot of this philosophy and of course Socrates would walk around the marketplace in ancient Athens and basically have conversations with people he would in some ways confront them in some ways argue with them and I suppose draw them through a conversation into thinking that there were maybe some blind spots in their philosophies and he would point out a few of those blind spots by asking questions and maybe enabling people to think a little bit deeper about some of the beliefs that they hold and there was almost two elements two main elements to to Socrates I suppose methods, he didn't necessarily have much of a philosophy because he didn't write a lot of stuff down, but these methods were basically, as we say so, argumentation and confrontation. So there was the argumentation sort of part in terms of not necessarily having conflict with someone, maybe more in terms of like forming rational arguments that people could follow along with or, or disagree with or expand on. But then there was that maybe confrontational element of trying to challenge people in a way that maybe helps them recognise some of those blind spots. Yes, and so as we talked about in the last episode, the way that Socrates would question people had some similar features of modern psychotherapy. In a way, he informed modern psychotherapy ways of asking people questions to deepen their understanding of themselves. And so along with that philosophical culture of ancient Greece, Socrates really believed in that expression, know thyself. And what better way of knowing thyself than reflecting on certain deepening kind of questions? Well, absolutely. And of course, Socrates had a disciple, he had a a student, Plato. And Plato was very interested in Socrates' affinity for for argumentation. So he wasn't necessarily as interested in the, the confrontation side of things. But Plato wrote many dialogues involving Socrates where in some ways he would distill Socrates' practices of conversation and he would exemplify them in these dialogues. And he was trying to do it in a way so that people would understand Socrates a little bit better and then eventually he would hope that they internalise some of Socrates' way of thinking. So, uh, of course, Plato himself had a disciple, Aristotle, And Aristotle contributed 
so many things to our understanding of the world and and philosophy and science and and just a a whole range of areas. But Aristotle had a disciple, uh, Alexander. So Alexander, or Alexander the Great, as we know him today, he went out and conquered basically the the known world at that stage, had a, a vast empire. And whilst there was an element to which he exported some of these ideas all over the world, which I'm sure had some benefit, he also brought in this period of, of anxiety for many people. And this was something that was picked up by Epicurus and the Epicureans, who picked up that people not only had this anxiety, but they had this anxiety about death. And Epicurus realised that well, a part of that anxiety about death was about maybe having things in life that we didn't want to, or in some ways, lose, we didn't want to get rid of. There was an element to which Epicurus thought that in death... There was an element of our agency being taken away from us because all of the things that we valued and cherished in life, we'd lose touch with. And so Epicurus thought that this anxiety about death was quite pervasive all over the Greek world at that stage. Yes, and one of the things that interested me about each of these philosophers, which apparently Epicurus emphasised even more, is how philosophy was not just about wisdom in terms of not being foolish and being wise in behaviour, but is also relevant to well-being. And understand that Epicurus emphasised that. And that link between wisdom and well-being, to me, is also reflected in ancient Greece. The Temple of Apollo at Delphi had the inscription, Know thyself at the entrance. And Apollo is the god of healing. So there's this link between knowing yourself more fully, even as you say, understanding a little bit more about your blind spots and well-being. And that's a theme of modern psychotherapy as well. And so in today's episode, we're going to develop these ideas a little bit because although I think there were some just fascinating ideas from obviously Plato and Epicurus, there was maybe another group of people who had a slightly more comprehensive understanding of the anxiety, the pervasive anxiety that people went through during that time. And and those are, of course, the Stoics. So in order to understand the Stoics a little bit better, there's another group of people that we have to look at called the Cynics. So Socrates himself had a disciple whose name was Antisthenes. And Antisthenes was a little bit different to Plato in terms of... So Plato, of course, was focused on the argumentation side. He was focused on the rationality, on on pulling things together in a logical way that people could understand and follow on with. Antisthenes was a little bit more interested in Socrates' confrontational side. So he didn't necessarily write dialogues in the same way that Plato did, but he was very interested in inducing this sense of aporia, that Socrates did. So aporia, of course, is this confrontation where you challenge people in a particular way where they almost just go like, oh, oh no, like I, I realise that I, I've reached a blind spot in my thinking, you know, what do I do with this? I think some people in that situation might really shy away from it and, you know, certainly Socrates was, well, I think he was eventually put to death, so it didn't necessarily make him the most popular figure. But for another group of people, this realisation allowed them to go, all right, hold on, there is a blind spot in my thinking here, and so I need to change some things about me or about the way that I do things in order to confront this little blind spot that I have and try and see things in a, a little bit more of a developed way. 
Yes, and it's interesting, you're describing the cynics, and I think many people would think of the word cynics and cynical as meaning being a bit negative, not believing things, uh, maybe a bit pessimistic about things, but actually the cynics were about something different than that, weren't they? Well, certainly, and and I suppose the best way to describe the cynics is through their uh, most famous philosopher or the most famous maybe character who, who practised their philosophy, and that was a fellow called Diogenes. And you may have come across Diogenes without maybe even necessarily knowing it. I believe there's a, a card of the tarot which uh, depicts a figure holding a lantern, and that's Diogenes. I think it's actually a Led Zeppelin album cover from the, from the 70s or 80s as well. So Diogenes is, is just a, a fascinating character because basically he was a fella who lived in a, a big barrel and I think the, the term cynic actually means to live like a dog is the, the root of the term. So the cynics were people who, I suppose, rejected attachment to material things like Socrates himself did. So Socrates, I think, would basically walk around. You know, he, he wouldn't necessarily wash himself. His clothes were quite dishevelled. He wasn't necessarily someone who, yeah, was into the whole maybe material aspect of life. And this was certainly something that was carried on by the cynics. And this fellow Diogenes who, so he was the pupil of Antisthenes. So I suppose the way that I almost think about these things, it can get a little bit confusing, but it's almost like a family. Like if you think, you know, Socrates was the grandfather of some of these ideas. Maybe Plato was the father of some of these ideas. Antisthenes was also the father or kind of of that generation. And then Aristotle and Diogenes almost stood as the, the grandchildren of these ideas. They were a couple of generations beyond where they were initially thought up, but they were certainly very interested in, in these ideas and, and further developed them. So Diogenes would, would just do some, some bizarre things. Like he would, for example, walk around the marketplace with this lantern. This is where the idea of Diogenes with the lantern comes from, but he'd walk around and he'd have you know, a thoroughly confused look on his face and he'd go up to people and he'd say, oh, ha have you seen one or things like this? And people would say, mate, like, what, what are you looking for? What, what, what are you doing with your lamp? It's the middle of the day, all this sort of stuff. He would say, oh, I'm looking for an honest man. So he's almost making a commentary in some ways on the way that people conducted themselves in the marketplace. And the way that I think about the cynics is, as we say, so they're not necessarily as interested in the, the rational argumentation side of Socrates. It is more the confrontation side. So I almost think of them as like a, a performative artist. Like if we think of... Maybe some, some musicians, like the one that really comes to mind is that Icelandic singer who was a little bit more prominent maybe a few years ago, but I believe her name's Björk, or, or maybe Lady Gaga is a, a slightly more contemporary example. But it's not as if Björk and Lady Gaga had a real kind of rationality, or it's not as if they were explicitly, I suppose, logical about why they, for example, just had these quite flamboyant, quite out there ways to dress and ways to conduct themselves and their music was a little bit maybe different from the conventional at that stage but it's more of this kind of performative aspect in a way that almost confronts people into going hold on why are they doing things in that way why are they dressing like that why are they behaving slightly different to me it's almost as if they yeah through their actions and through what they wore and how they behaved they were aiming to, I suppose, challenge people to go, oh, that, that is so outside of what I consider to be the conventional or, you know, quote-unquote, right way to be doing something. 
but you know they're getting away with it and so there must be maybe a blind spot in my thinking to think that that's just a, a bizarre and unhelpful way to behave and so yeah so it's not as if they relied on kind of logic and rationality to make their commentary or to get their ideas across there was this more performative aspect to how they challenged people. Well, that's very interesting, that image from Led Zeppelin four relating that old man with a lamp to Diogenes. I didn't know about that connection. But what you're describing as well, it reminds me of the story of Jesus at the temple upturning the tables of the merchants and sort of feeling that their values or their priorities had got really out of whack. It sounds like the cynics, in a different way centuries earlier, were looking to challenge people also by their actions to think a little bit more deeply about things, be a bit more aware of distortions, I suppose, in their priorities. Well, most certainly, I think that's a very good pickup. I think that's absolutely true. And and I suppose when you look at, at say, that action from Diogenes, that, you know, walking around with a lamp in the marketplace, you know, I'm looking for an honest man, calling people out in some ways on the way that they conducted themselves and their, I suppose, morality and the way that they behave during business negotiations and things like this. Like you hear about that and you almost think in some ways like, geez, he's a pretty stand-up character, Diogenes. You know, he's got this sort of way of challenging people in order to become better versions of themselves. But he also did some pretty wacky things, Diogenes. And so in that same marketplace, so he's walking around, you know, I'm, I'm looking for an honest man. You know, can you show me to an honest man? Trying to point out that people weren't conducting themselves in a moral way. He would also walk into the middle of the marketplace and, and start pleasuring himself. <laughs> think what a, a just bizarre thing to be doing but in some ways again he was making this commentary on sort of saying look everyone's acting as if it's okay to be immoral in the marketplace it's okay to be a little bit corrupt it's okay to take advantage of people in certain ways why is it that I then can't you know pleasure myself which is something that kind of everyone does I think is the the commentary that he was t- trying to make saying why is it that we have an issue with you know, me, me doing this thing that everybody does in the privacy of their own home. Like, obviously, I'm not doing it in a private setting, so I can understand why people are confronted a little bit by by this action. But he was kind of juxtaposing that and saying, well, hold on, like, what really is the thing in this situation? Should we be, I suppose, getting our goat up about? What is the thing that we should really take issue with? Is it me doing something that you know, kind of everyone does, you know, in, in the privacy of their own home. It's not as if it's a, a completely immoral act inherently within itself. That seems to be what's causing the problem. It's not, you know, all this immorality. It's not the way that people are behaving in, in business decisions and negotiating. It's people weren't having an issue with, for example, people conducting bad faith negotiations and this sort of stuff. And, and that really gets to the heart of what the cynics were trying to do because I suppose the cynics' central idea is that they were trying to look at the things that were most permanent across cultures across time. So they recognised that there were some things that were, were maybe socially or culturally contingent and they wanted to maybe differentiate the things that were important in a particular society at a time to the things that were important to everyone across all time in, in terms of maybe being some more moral truths. 
Yes, well, I'm glad that Led Zeppelin chose the image of Diogenes carrying a lamp rather than masturbating in public. I think that was a good choice on their part. And uh, we can call that a particular type of performance art, can't we? But I suppose when you think about it, it sounds like he was looking for people to wake up in a certain kind of way and thinking just using simple words or argument might not be as effective as something confronting. And when you think about it, in our cultures well, Western and other cultures, just say some of the behaviour of Donald Trump and how much many people on the same side of politics have just turned a blind eye to some of his behaviour, which you would think would be beyond the pale in terms of certain kind of deeper moral values. Or we can look at Putin in Russia and the most effective opposition leader recently presumably being killed as well. And how many people in that culture would turn a blind eye to that or make excuses for it? How do you get people, in a sense, to be mobilised, to feel strongly about things like that and look to take action in some way or at least look to have a balance winning out, which is more moral behaviour? And maybe this idea of confronting or challenging people or getting people to think in a different way, this performance art, was a way of looking to create a message over and above just straight language. And in that regard, it reminds me a bit of psychodrama or different types of therapy techniques which go beyond just using words to look to confront or challenge people because sometimes we need to be shaken out of our current way of seeing things to do something differently. Well, I think that's that's absolutely true and, and seems to really get at the heart of what the cynics were about. Like there's a, a very famous story with Diogenes where he actually met Alexander the Great and Alexander had heard about this fella and, you know, he's got a pretty strange way of going about things, but he's got some interesting ideas and so Alexander thought, I'm going to go down and meet this guy. So he went down to his, you know, his barrel where he lived and uh, he said, you know, I, I'm Alexander, I'm, you know, the greatest man in all the world, I, you know, I've conquered sort of the known world, I can give you anything that you want, you know, anything that your hearts desire, what is it that you want? And Diogenes looked up at him and he said, can you move a little bit to the left, you're blocking my sunlight. Right. So I, I doubt there would have been many people around at that time who, you know, if they had the audience of Alexander offering him, you know, anything that he wants, not many people would go with something so kind of trivial as, you know, can you get out of my way? You're blocking my sunlight. But in a sense, what's most important at the time and not getting carried away with ego or the notions of status or things that might be considered to be so important, but sometimes in the scheme of things, they're not. Absolutely. And, and that really is what the cynics were trying to do. They were trying to differentiate between, you know, of the things that I'm assigning meaning to, what are the things that are culturally based, which are, are potentially subject to change? And which are the more kind of everlasting values that are, are going to be worth or assigning meaning to and holding on to in a longer term? Yes, well, one thing I came across that relates to that is I believe that cynics had a deep respect for nature. And so I suppose that's getting across at something more permanent and everlasting rather than just what might be the fashion of the day. 
Yeah, so I, I believe the, the cynics almost had two types of, of laws that they really valued. So natural laws was one of them. So that's where they, I think, decided to live like animals. Like the word cynic, I believe, refers to people living like a dog. That, that's where we get this term from. But the other one is moral laws. And so that these moral laws are kind of the more everlasting, the longer term, uh, the, the more permanent a set of laws that we can aspire to and there's a way that they almost differentiated these types of laws and they looked at say for example the difference between guilt and shame and I know modern psychology does this a little bit differently so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on maybe how these ideas developed into modern psychology in just a moment but basically they thought of guilt as the distress that you feel from having broken a moral principle so for example we we might feel guilty within ourselves if we've done something immoral no one might find out about it but we still know within ourselves oh you know I shouldn't have done that I feel bad within myself I haven't put the best version of myself forward in that situation and shame which is the distress that you feel having broken a purity code so I believe shame in this context it relates a little bit more to a lack of capacity to get respect from our peers so for example if I'm standing up the front of a lecture theater you know giving a lecture and all of a sudden all of my clothes come off well, I, I might feel a little bit shameful in that situation because you're not supposed to be you know, out in public without having your clothes on. But it's not as if I should feel guilty about that situation. You know, I didn't deliberately take my clothes off. It's not as if I acted immorally in that situation. It's just that I'm, I'm maybe being shamed by the, the social code, the cultural code that suggests you shouldn't be out in public and have your, have your clothes off, be naked sort of thing. The other example that I think is pertinent is in the, the civil rights movement in America in the 1950s and 60s, a lot of people were greatly shamed about, for example, supporting black people in that situation, but they felt no guilt about that. They recognised, I'm doing the right thing within myself, but you know, people were still really trying to shame them in, partic in particular ways. But I know that, that modern psychology has a, a slightly different interpretation of guilt and shame. Yes, well, I suppose in therapy sessions, if we talk about guilt and shame, often we talk about guilt in relation to a particular behaviour, someone feeling they'd done the wrong thing in a certain way, whereas shame often involves some kind of negative judgment, negative reaction in terms of one's identity. So with shame, people looking to almost hide or make themselves small. But if I follow on from what you're saying there, if... Shame is partly relating to this feeling, as you're describing, of, of judgment by others or potential judgment by others. Certainly in many therapy situations, there's a theme of looking for people not to be too hung up on what other people might think or how other people might judge them, but rather people looking at their own values, what counts more that way. And that's where people might experience, as you say, guilt in relation to more long-term values or feel that maybe they've done the wrong thing. There could be something quite constructive about that notion of guilt. If people are recognising maybe they've acted in a way that they're not proud of, they're not happy with, they think that they could have handled things better. But 
then maybe apologising for something, looking to make a situation right. The emotion of guilt, so long as it's not overdone, can be a helpful and constructive thing, whereas often shame is a limited, restrictive kind of emotion and sometimes overly influenced by other people's perceptions, either real or imagined. Well, it's interesting that although modern psychology seems to have developed the ideas a little bit, like that idea of maybe hiding and, and feeling small, there does maybe seem to still be, uh, I suppose, a connection to that almost external validation idea or that external judgment. And that is something that the cynics subscribe to. Yeah, so it seems to me that, again, a lot of the theme that we're looking at is meaning, but there can be maybe more superficial meaning to things, like, for example, what other people tell us we should think or something like that or what what other people tell us that we should value and then the notion of there being deeper meanings to things. And you actually had a wonderful example or two from actors, recognised actors, who had some wonderful ways of conveying something of their views of what counts the most or what means the most. Yeah, well, I suppose if we we extrapolate sort of what the cynics were trying to do out. They were really trying to challenge the process of meaning-making. Like, the Epicureans picked up on the idea that meaning-making is important, but it was the cynics that went, hold on, that doesn't just mean orient ourselves towards, you know, what seems most meaningful at that time. And there's a brilliant speech that I reckon I've even brought up on the podcast before by Jim Carrey at the Golden Globes where, you know, they announce him, they say, oh, this is two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And he gets out and he goes, oh, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I dream, I don't just dream a normal dream. I dream of being three-time Golden Globe (laughs) winner Jim Carrey because then I'd finally be enough. And he, he goes on with it, and it's, it's just brilliant. I'll, I'll put it on the uh, podcast page for today at psychspills.com.au because it's just fascinating. But it really gets to the heart of this idea. And the other one who's, I think, had a fascinating response to winning an award was Matt Damon, who I believe won, uh, um, was his first Oscar? Or he's probably won more than one Oscar. But anyway, he's, he won an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. It certainly was his first Oscar. And he had apparently this just sense when he got home that night, he's looking at the award, you know, probably in his bedroom or something like this, having a reflective moment. He thought, I am so glad I didn't spend my entire life trying to pursue one of these awards. It was almost as if, you know, before that time, he thought, what an amazing thing it would be to have an Academy Award now that I've got it, it's like, well, what, what would I do if that was, you know, my be-all and end-all? And that's in some ways an idea that really is borrowed from the cynics or it's a realisation that I think the cynics would have agreed with and endorsed in some ways because what they were trying to do is really go, yeah, you know, be careful about setting your heart on things that might seem super-duper meaningful at the time But then you can get to the stage where, yeah, like you achieve it, you have it, you know, you have your red Ferrari, you achieve winning an Oscar. And then if it doesn't satisfy you, if you don't get the, I suppose, intended level of meaning from it, well, you're just going to end up feeling, you know, terrible, but potentially even worse than than if you hadn't pursued that thing as a particular, you know, thing worthy of, of gaining meaning from. That's a great story and wise beyond his years despite that kind of success, not getting sucked into that. And it it actually reminds me of that expression. Apparently it was an old curse. Be careful what you wish for because it might just come true. 
Well, I think that's a, a great example. That that encapsulates the idea, I think, very well of, yeah, be careful what we set our heart upon. Be careful on what we consider to be the things that are most meaningful. Make sure that it's not, you know, in a modern context, you know, too material or, you know, impermanent or, or things like this. That's really what the cynics were trying to do. But I suppose the cynics... And in some ways, Socrates himself were inherently disruptive, what they did. They deliberately tried to challenge people in a way that was a little bit, I suppose, antisocial. And I mean that in the maybe literal term antisocial, like we've got a whole set of connotations around that word now. But it would have been, you know, at a a fundamental level, uncomfortable for people to engage in that style of thinking and, and have those conversations with people. So it let others to recognize that although they maybe saw wisdom in, in what the cynics did and even what Socrates did, they thought, hold on, we've got to maybe think of a way of integrating these ideas in a way that is a little bit more social. And and one of the people who did that was our very first Stoic philosopher, Zeno. So I believe Diogenes had a disciple whose name was Crates, who we spoke about a couple of episodes ago, who was walking past a bookshop when Zeno was in the bookshop and, and you know, he just lost his fortune basically and said to the bookseller, you know, oh, I'm really looking for a mentor, someone who can teach me these things. And Crates walked past. And so Zeno learnt, you know, from Crates, who, who was a, a cynic himself or was at least very heavily influenced by the cynics. But Zeno wanted to, in some ways, reintegrate Plato's idea of argumentation. Like we spoke about Antisthenes going down the confrontation arm of what Socrates did, Plato down the argumentation side of things. He was more focused on the the logical and the rational side of things. And, And Zeno wanted to reintegrate these two ideas. And so what he did was, in some ways, he crafted a religion. Like, we think of these things in terms of, like, a school of philosophy, but that's not necessarily how people back then thought of these things and contextualised these things. Like, I believe Zeno would walk up and down what was called the Stoa. So it was like a a covered colonnade. Uh, I almost think of it as, you know, as a a veranda. (laughs) In some ways, is almost the the best modern context that we can think of it as. But literally just like, you know, a, a... a courtyard in the middle surrounded by a building on all sides and it's got columns everywhere and and Zeno would walk up and down there talking to people and giving his teachings and and that was called a stoa so we refer to Zeno as a stoic that's where we get the term from so Zeno recognized that there was something that cynics had gotten correct but they had also gotten something wrong he thought it's not what you set your heart on that matters even if it's something that's more permanent It's actually about the process of setting your heart on something or it's the process of wishing for something or it's the process of finding meaning in something that's more important. They really look to try and pay attention to how meaning is being made, not what it is that we end up with as as meaningful in and of itself. I think that's a really interesting idea of the cynics. It's particularly the process of finding meaning rather than something being meaningful in itself. And it does remind me of the positive psychology strategy of identifying and using your signature character strengths. I think that when we're using our top strengths, whether it be creativity or love of knowledge or perspective or courage or curiosity or zest, when we're actually acting on our top strengths, we're likely to find that experience meaningful 
especially as Seligman identified, especially when we're using our strengths in the service of others in some way. Maybe that you know, action of being engaged in using our character strengths and doing that for the benefit of other people, that's actually a way of operationalising, finding meaning in some way and emphasising the process rather than the thing itself. Well, I think that that's absolutely true in terms of, yeah, the, the character strengths seem to be a very good vehicle for... Focusing a little bit more on the process, but I do just almost want to drill down into exactly what that process is because we have spoken about it before, particularly on the episode a couple of weeks ago. But what the Stokes were trying to do was to get people to separate the meaning from the event, or at the very least, pay attention to the way that we're assigning a particular meaning to an event. And of course, like by an event, I mean, you know, for example, something in, in the physical world, like something outside ourselves. Stoics realise that that process at which we go, this is something that's meaningful, that's, I suppose, open to all of our yeah, self-deception, all of our filters, you know, my, our mood at that particular time. So we almost really need to challenge ourselves at that point. And it's my understanding, as we've spoken a little bit about, but like this is the core of modern psychology in some ways. It's going, hold on, you know, we're going to find things meaningful regardless of whether we're deliberate about it or not, but we really need to challenge the process with which we do that. We need to challenge the way that we make meaning for ourselves in order that the, the meaning and the event aren't just fused together. Yes, and one example of that was the way that, Albert Ellis would challenge people. So we have a previous podcast on rational emotive therapy. And what Ellis picked up on is often people would oppress themselves by thinking, I should do this, I must do that, I have to do such and such else, as though those were the most important things that people could do. But the examples could include, I must succeed at this, I have to have that person's approval. It's very important that things turn out just the way that I want for me to be happy or I, I can't stand this, it's too uncomfortable. So he picked up on how people were prioritising things like success or approval or comfort as though they were the most important things for people to have in their lives. And he was thinking, wait a minute, this is getting things really out of balance. Like the Stoics recognised, and Ellis specifically studied the Stoics to look at this kind of thing, and he was challenging or questioning, for example, the need for success and approval and all the rest of it. But funnily enough, part of the way that he did this was also performative. He didn't just question people using Socratic dialogue. He was also very confrontational and that he'd use terms like, if people thought, oh, I must do this, he'd call it masturbation. <laughs> so the idea was to be confronting, to challenge people. And I remember at a time seeing him at a conference in Oxford. He was getting us all to sing these songs, and he called them rational emotive songs. And they're really silly songs where people would talk about, I should this and that, and, and masturbation, and he had us all singing these songs. Well, two-thirds of the audience were singing these songs. One-third were too embarrassed to sing these songs. The, maybe many of the English with a stiff upper lip that wasn't their way of kind of doing things. It was a very confronting New Yorker way of 
getting people to question their beliefs. But I was interested to run into his wife, well, actually his widow, Debbie Joff Ellis, at a conference. And I mentioned to her how much I'd got out of Albert Ellis and his presentations at conferences. And I remember mentioning the humour of it, these songs that he'd get us to sing and the like wacky humour to it. It was interesting, she said, yes, he wanted to make the message entertaining. So she was highlighting that he wasn't just saying things to suggest how people might think differently or challenge their thinking. He recognised that for people to actually change their behaviour, they needed to be moved in some way. They, something needed to get their attention and he did this in a kind of entertaining way using humour and the unexpected kind of thing of getting everyone to sing these songs at a conference, these silly songs at a serious conference. And I think there's a little bit of the cynic's performance art in that, in that he knew that you can't just sometimes say straight messages to people to maybe shift them from a certain kind of way of thinking sometimes you need to confront them in another way. Well, that's so interesting that Alice had, I suppose, to, to such a degree, maybe in, internalised some of this philosophy as well. And like that reminds me, like what we're really getting to the heart of here is what Alice was talking about in terms of ABC. Like you might be able to remind us here a little bit more eloquently that, uh, that I can remember. I can't remember what A, B and C stand for, I must admit. But this idea of, you know, say we've got an act, is it activation? Uh, yeah, so we call it like, say, an activating event. Or yes. I might call it, say, an actual situation. What a camera might see, the objective situation itself. C is the consequence. So the emotional consequences, for example, of feeling sad or embarrassed or anxious in a particular situation or relieved or amused. And then, as Ellis emphasised, it's not the actual event, the activating event that leads to the consequence. There's something that happens in between, and that's the B, our beliefs, our beliefs about the situation, our perspective on it, our take on it. And that's the Stoic philosophy. It's not the event itself but how we perceive it, our beliefs, that's what determines our reaction and our emotions. Well, I'd actually forgotten that he even used the term events. Like, that's absolutely fascinating. That is just such a, a hearkening back to the Stoic way of thinking about things. And, and that is really what the Stoics discovered. Like, that, that's the crux of their philosophy, I think, in a way. Like, it was almost as if the Epicureans discovered all right, well, if we have an activating event, there's consequences. So we need to pay attention to what those consequences are and maybe orient ourselves further towards activating events, which are going to give us, you know, quote unquote, better consequences. They're going to you know, be more positive for us in the long run. Well, the, the cynics, they sort of realise that, well, hold on, you know, don't just make sure it's, you know, any activating event, there's particular activating events that can maybe activate the wrong emotions or existentially we can be, you know, maybe taken in a slightly different direction, which isn't going to be good for us. So we really need to challenge those things. And then what the Stoics were doing was adding in that B, the, the belief aspect of things and going hold on we have no control over many of the events in our lives and this was also another massive part of the stoics philosophy this idea of control like believe 
Epictetus, who was a, a very famous Stoic who, who's come up on the podcast before, but he started kind of, he, I think he's one of his major works with be very careful to realise that there are many things outside of our control. And, and I believe he said the heart of wisdom is recognising what's within our control and what's not within our control. So this idea of, of accepting particular situations and particular events is a massively central part of Stoicism. But what the Stoics were trying to do was to say, hold on, we have some influence in this process by looking at the, the beliefs, by looking at what meaning we assign to something or what meaning we assign to a particular event. That actually is something that we have a little bit more control over that we realise. And I think, you know, even in a modern context, a lot of the time many people will think that they can kind of, you know, control events around them. Like people talk about stuff like, uh, you know, setting an intention and, and manifesting things in a particular way, which although I think there's some wisdom in that, it can go a fair way when you're looking at people, you know, say entrepreneurs and stuff on Twitter who are really getting into this stuff and it's maybe a little bit of a, a watered down kind of sugary version that's not kind of inherently stoic in terms of I think we need to realise that well, at the very least there are going to be events that we don't have control over. What we do have control over is, yeah, this, this process of assigning a value to it uh, and that is the kind of the B in the ABC model. Yes, and when it boils down to it, a whole lot of modern therapy comes down to that, helping people step back from a situation and revise how they're viewing things. And quite frankly, part of that is people hearing themselves talk. Just when a therapist is listening to the person, then the person, even in hearing themselves talk about a situation, can maybe reflect on some things that they're saying or notice that some things maybe might have a degree of exaggeration to it or something like that, or there's another way of looking at it. But then the therapist will often use Socratic-like questions or challenge the person directly or confront them directly and sometimes use methods that's not just straight talking. It might be other methods, including imagery techniques or psychodrama techniques or chair work techniques that look to bring up a degree of emotion or using humour in a situation as well. So sometimes it needs to go beyond a, a straight conversation for people to maybe shift their thinking in a certain kind of way. But ultimately, there'll be discussion, reflection, and probably an element of confrontation that comes into it. For sure. Well, I suppose, Dad, we, we need to really get to, like, what can we do about all this? Like, we, we understand a little bit more now about the meaning in the event, how we have to separate those things, about how we have a little bit more control over the meaning that we do have. But at the same time, like it strikes me that that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do is to go through a, an activating event and go, all right, I'm just going to you know, stand in the way of my emotions in this particular situation and reorient myself towards feeling a particularly different way about it. But they did have some fascinating practices, the Stoics. And I did also just want to mention quickly, like relatively there are very few stoic writings that exist today because the stoics themselves didn't actually believe in indoctrinating principles like they followed on from for example socrates who had this real emphasis on doing not necessarily just you know sitting down and having a, a kumbaya type conversation about it all it was actually about how can you put things into a particular practice and and they did have 
a, a number of ways at which they did this. And the first one, I believe they called something like the view from above. So this is a, a way that they tried to maybe manipulate the kind of level of meaning that we feel in a particular situation. So, for example, we have a, an event. We have an activating event, as Alice would have referred to it as. And say it's, uh, you know, I, I've had a fight with my neighbour uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm lying in bed at night and I just can't get over the fact that we've had this fight and it's gone this particular way. Well, this idea of the view from above is like, all right, say we're in, uh, say, say we're in Geelong, we're recording this in Geelong. Okay, now contextualise that fight with your neighbour in the entirety of Geelong. How impactful is that fight for everyone in Geelong? And you think, oh, well, look, oh, I'm just one person, you know. All right, now contextualise it in all of Victoria. Okay, now contextualise it in all of Australia. Now contextualise it in the world and the universe. And it's almost like the further we get away from the initial event, well, the, the less meaningful it seems in a particular way because we realise, hold on, it's one tiny little cog in the massive machine that is everything going on. And although it seems quite big to me at the moment, maybe if I recontextualise things, it's not the most important thing in the world or the universe. Yes, a helpful exercise. Another similar kind of notion is think of how important will this be tomorrow? What about a week's time? How about a year's time? How important will this slip up or argument or conflict or concern, how important is that likely to be in five years' time, ten years' time? And often we can step back and think, yes, with that broader view, maybe it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, as they say. So it's got this notion, I just find that fascinating, like that they're great examples, like we can do it with time frame as well as like our, our geographical location, but it's got this notion that the more broadly that we look at something, the kind of smaller it seems, or at the very least, we experience this perspectival change, like we, we look at things slightly differently when we apply a slightly different lens to it. And that's really playing with some of these stoic ideas. It's recognising these ideas and, and, and that's a particular practice that does get to the heart of it. There's another interesting one which basically it, it looks at our attachment with things and it, it's a way to, I suppose, disrupt maybe some of the attachment that we feel towards particular things. And, and they would advocate, for example, for, for finding a, a cup, like a, a coffee mug at, at work, for example, that you really, really like and use it, you know, every day for three months and, you know, it can be really appreciative of that cup. And then, you know, after a particular amount of time, throw it away or, or break the cup. And so you go through this practice of thinking, oh, I bloody love that cup, you know, my morning coffee is made so much better because of that cup. But then when you break the cup and you actually kind of get rid of it, you remove yourself from the cup, you realise it wasn't the cup in itself, it was you know, the meaning that I attributed to the cup. It was, you know, sitting with friends. It was all these other things outside of just that cup. And so that's a, a practice that the Stoics advocated for to, I suppose, yeah, manipulate our attachment with material things. Yes, another example I really like about not getting too attached to something, it's that notion of the Buddhist yogis, for example. There were some in... Market Square in Geelong many years ago who come in and they make this most magnificent sand sculpture and it takes a whole week at least to make this wonderful sand sculpture and it's just so beautiful and it's all symmetrical and wonderful and what do they do at the end? They sweep it all away. 
And it's a reminder that all of life is impermanent, but also don't get too hung up on the outcome and just sit back and you know, marvel in the glory of you know, what you've produced. It's actually the act of producing it that often is an important thing, but also don't get hung up on things having to be there. Don't get too attached on it because everything is impermanent. Well, I think that's such a, a great example and, and it highlights some of the very interesting connections between some of this philosophy and Buddhism, like particularly even, say, with, with Diogenes and his rejection of, of many of the material aspects of life. Like that is, that's a, a very fundamental Buddhist philosophy in many ways. So I suppose it speaks to maybe the wisdom of some of these things that they transcend particular schools of philosophy, their ideas that, that show up in multiple places and, and I think well, they're very wise ideas. But the third practice that I wanted to, to mention, Dad, that the Stoics had is, is the most famous in many ways and they're moment-to-moment practices. And there's a particular book that many people will have heard of that I think is actually, it's a little bit misunderstood at times and that's The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And so Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome, I believe at a time when the empire was still in its ascent. I believe he was seen as actually the the last great emperor of Roman times. And uh, Marcus Aurelius had this practice that he did where he would write in his diary what he called these meditations. And I think people get this a little bit wrong at times because you can see, for example, on Twitter or there's like newsletters and all this sort of stuff that put these meditations kind of in quotes and then you have, you know, Marcus Aurelius down the bottom and it might be made into, you know, a very nice looking social media graphic. But we'll go through some of them in a, in a moment so you can really get a, a bit more of a sense of this. But Marcus Aurelius wasn't putting these ideas out there as something to change the belief of a particular audience. He was really doing it to remind himself in particular situations, no, like I need to get back to this way of thinking. And I might even just read out a couple of his meditations because I think once you start to look at it in this context of it's the most powerful man in the world who had access to you know just about everything under the sun at that time, These were little reminders that he left for himself in his diary not to get too carried up with certain things. So he would say, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. Or dwell on the beauty of life. Watch the stars and see yourself running with them. The happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. It is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never beginning to live. Very little is needed to make a happy life. It is all within yourself, in your way of thinking. Reject your sense of injury and the injury itself disappears. So you can see, like this, as we say, this is literally the most powerful person in the world at that time. And he's writing these little kind of aphorisms to himself in his diary to go, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm bubbling with rage. What am I going to do about that? Oh, I'll look through my little book and, you know, either write some more things down that's going to remind me, hold on, no, step back from things a little bit, put things in a different perspective, you know, recognise what's really important 
even though there's a lot of things, you know, borrowing from the cynics, there's a lot of things here that in a, a social context, like he's, he's the emperor of Rome, like he would have just access to all the material wealth, to oh, some of the most, you know, interesting entertainment, like all this sort of stuff, yet he's really trying to, to ground himself in these stoic principles. Yes, I like that emphasis that you're making, that it was basically about a kind of inner experience in a way and looking at making these things and considering their relevance, their personal relevance to himself and taking that really seriously and looking to integrate it. And the way you describe that, it's kind of like the step from cognitive therapy to cognitive behavioural therapy. The thing with cognitive therapy is it emphasised a whole lot of different ways of looking at our thinking, but actually behind it it was also looking at our emotions and behaviour and acting differently and all the rest of it. But the term cognitive behavioural therapy, the behavioural, was looking to highlight, yes, but it's important to act on these things. It's important to have the experience of acting on these things. Those quotes from Marcus Aurelius, they're not just thought bubbles. The question is, how can we enact that in our life? And when we think of a phrase like, reject your sense of injury, and the injury itself disappears, well, if you've experienced a significant trauma or very challenging circumstances where there is loss involved, then it's not just easy to reject your sense of injury in a way, But by the same token, that kind of appreciation that whether we experience ourselves as a victim or whether we experience ourselves as having some sense of agency in how we respond to a challenging situation, it's got a lot to do with our perspective in a situation. We do have some choice. We do have some influence or control. We've got some sense of agency, even in very significant traumatic situations. And that's taking it further this notion that it's not just an event itself but it's how we perceive it that counts but yes be very careful about the meanings that we ascribe to an event because if we ascribe the meaning that i'm a victim here then there'll be a lot of consequences to feeling and acting like a victim well absolutely and the thing that i just find so interesting about that you know without knowing kind of historically whether this could be true like it just strikes me that Marcus Aurelius would have had a sense of injury <laughs> as he was writing that. It's like, it's, you know, he's really trying to remind himself, you know, no, don't give in to these kind of emotional whims at this time. You know, what are the things that I need to write down that's going to remind me, no, let's get back to, you know, my, my best form of Marcus in some ways. Actually, that's a very good way of putting it. The, the, the best form of Marcus, we talk about the best version of ourselves. Well, without being too perfectionistic about it, it's drawing upon some of these principles. So, yes, bringing back to that central notion of meaning in our psychological well-being, and, well, that will be leading on to what we talk about in some coming topics because we mentioned how the theme of meaning is becoming especially important in positive psychology and in other ways. Well, that's a topic that will be continuing in future podcast episodes, but further from a current perspective, including positive psychology. Well, I very much look forward to those couple of episodes, Dad, because, yeah, this is just such a topic that I just find so (laughs) meaningful, to pardon the pun, but something that I think is so important and something that we, we probably don't explicitly talk a whole lot about in our culture, 
And so I think it'll be good to explore that a little bit more. But I suppose just to almost get a a little bit more broad with it again, Dad, like I've got this analogy, like something came up for me the other day where, you know, I was thinking about these ideas and and I'd heard about, well, really a very sad situation, really. And there was an element to which, you know, I almost looked back at some of this sort of stuff and thought, geez, is it a little bit trivial? Like, is it a little bit the sort of thing where, you know what, shit happens in life and sometimes you almost just need to put one foot in front of the other and thinking about what you know some dude who was living in a barrel in ancient Greece and masturbating in public like that's just unhelpful in terms of the reality of particular situations and I almost just think of it in terms of it's like you know when we go through difficult situations in life and maybe like trauma or mental illness things like this it's almost like you're you're out in the ocean just in the middle of nowhere you've got no access to land there's no boats around or anything and it's a a choppy ocean there's waves and white caps and all this sort of stuff and and so what's happening is it is our head is kind of bobbing above and below water and you know sometimes our head's just going to be below water and in that situation all we've got to do is get our head back above water again and that's where I think a lot of modern psychology recognises that Yes, this stuff is so important, but there are times where we need to just put one foot in front of the other. It's about maybe survival a little bit more than it's about kind of finessing things in a particular way. But where I think the value of this stuff really comes in is when we find ourselves, you know, even if for a brief moment, we find ourselves with a head above water and we can have this maybe sense of, you know, things aren't as bad as they were yesterday or they're not as bad as they were last week. If we ever have this sense that our head is above water, we can breathe a little bit more clearly again, then these are the things that I really think help to keep our head above water and even maybe draw us out of that kind of ocean, you know, like some of this stuff, you know, it's it's becoming a bit of a crude analogy now, but like, for example, it can be a boat that can kind of help us and when we're in a position to you know, have a little bit more energy to dedicate towards some of this sort of stuff. We're not necessarily feeling in the eye of the storm at that time. Well, then we can lean into some of these ideas a little bit more and maybe there is some stuff in this that can help us benefit a little bit further in the long run so that our head's not going to spend as much time below water. Like that's very much how I see this stuff. It's not to say to someone who's, you know, very traumatised and really feeling terrible about the world. It's not to say to them, hey, learn about all this stoic philosophy and then go write your little diary of your own meditations and stuff like that might not necessarily be the most helpful thing but there might be times where we find ourselves with a little bit more energy feeling a little bit better within ourselves and then some of this stuff can maybe deliver us towards getting back on dry land just to to continue the the crude analogy yes sometimes you just get by any which way you can and it's interesting that As with Stoic philosophy, it was maybe not the worst disaster on earth, but it was a very significant disaster that Zeno had when he lost this huge cargo and he became poor from having been very rich at first through losing all this this cargo. But rather than him thinking he'd lost his fortune, he gained something much greater by pursuing a philosophy and Stoic philosophy. So a lot of these uplifting ideas in his case followed on from having gone through a very dark time and that's one of the things which is uplifting as a therapist actually. You see people come through very dark and difficult times when maybe at the time all they could do was get by any which way they could 
but sometimes when people look back and they think in their life of what's helped them understand what is most meaningful to them, sometimes people had a refined sense of that after recovering from a significant depression or trauma reaction which really gets people to go inside to a degree and think about what's important because there are times when it can seem that all that's lost and it can refine people's sense of values. Well, certainly, and, and that seems to be what Stoicism does in many ways in terms of when we engage with these ideas, maybe at a time where we you know, do feel it's a little bit more appropriate and we're a little bit more up to it, we can experience that sense of manipulating our own meaning or, or changing our own meaning in a situation, and, and that's, that's the crux of Stoicism. So it's taken us a few episodes to get there, Dad, and oh, thank you so much for, uh, for you know, letting us go down these... Many, many rabbit holes. We've got a bit of a warren going at the moment, a rabbit warren. But uh, I very much enjoyed looking at, at many of these ideas and, and we will put uh, some resources up on the episode page for today at psychspills.com.au. But I look forward to the next couple of episodes about meaning as well, Dad. This is a great topic to follow on. Yes, right. I've enjoyed learning more about these philosophers from your research and interests. So thank you for that.